Everybody, it's Adam Shartoff, the host of Film Wax Radio, your weekly podcast. Conversations with film industry luminaries. Uh, We've been doing this now for uh, nine years. Nine years. Incredible. It's Friday, October the 16th, 2020. This is episode number 639 of the podcast. I was posting video versions of these conversations. Everything was being done on Zoom, as you know, by the last few months of the crappy audio. I fixed that, by the way. I think you'll notice a big difference now. But I was getting so much video content, I started getting sort of addicted to having these conversations with people because I was enjoying it so much. And being at home and the ease of it. And um, I realized I could start posting conversations pretty much every day, uh, a weekdays, let's say. And in order to bring attention to what film people are doing these days, you know, what projects are out there, what festivals are doing, how people are coping and working regardless of the pandemic or, or due to the pandemic. And, it could be a whole other interesting line of, uh, you know, right? it could be a whole thing unto itself. Sort of like this Film Wax TV idea I had a couple of years ago. And back then the idea was I had access to this green screen studio and we were going to do a talk show with this fabulous virtual set. Well, <laughs> that's still something in the future perhaps, but in the meantime, we can do this and we can post it. So what, what the plan currently is I'm trying to post five videos a day of various lengths. Uh, some of them are just 15, 20 minutes. Others could be an hour with friends of the podcast, new and old. And some of these people are filmmakers, some are musicians, some are authors, some are directors. And um, they're going to go up on the Film Wax Radio YouTube channel. So you can go to... Uh, youtube.com slash filmwaxradio and you'll find it there and you can subscribe if you're listening please do subscribe yeah you know i mean essentially uh, if you could take five minutes and do that and then also go to the apple podcast and subscribe if you're not already but also leave a rating and a review it's very easy to do it only takes a couple of minutes and it would be greatly appreciated so thank you for that uh so if you enjoy the show you can now get more content that's only available on the youtube channel this, again, is episode 639. We have uh, an old friend of the podcast. He's the executive director of the Montclair Film Festival, but he's also the, you know, overseas programming as part of his duties. Tom Hall will be back. And again, you can listen to it on this episode here, as you are now, or you can switch over and go to our YouTube channel and watch 
that same episode with Tom Hall. The same is true with the second guest. Uh, in the second uh, part of the show, we have the documentary filmmaker, and even more specifically, the music doc filmmaker. I won't call him a rock doc filmmaker because he actually has made documentaries about, well, rock star, but he's also made documentaries about jazz musicians and now pop with this uh, new documentary that's currently out called Herb Albert Is. John Scheinfeld is the guest. This is his first time on the podcast. However, I have uh, met him and interviewed him before. He did a uh, film documentary a couple of years back. When I say a couple, it's been like 10 years on the singer-songwriter Harry Nilsson called Who is Harry Nilsson and Why is Everybody Talking About Him? And I, I love that documentary. And um, But the new one that we're going to talk about again is called Herb Albert Is. But first, Tom Hall, the Montclair Film Festival. It's a festival I generally have been attending, attending since it started. This is the ninth season. They typically have their festival in May, but because of the pandemic, they moved it to October, where I guess from now on, it will remain. The ninth annual Montclair Film Festival entertained film lovers and professionals from across the region and country with 10 days of compelling indie films, comedies, documentaries, panels, family events, and work by emerging artists. The festival provide a platform for talented filmmakers from around the world and give special recognition to New Jersey artists. For the first time, the festival will feature a program of drive-in screenings, virtual screenings, special events, and conversations. The full program schedule can now be found at montclairfilm.org. Tickets are currently available for, I think, just about everything. You can get, I think, a pass for the festival, but not the drive-ins. Those have to be purchased individually. So if you live in the Montclair, New Jersey area, you will tr you should try to get to one of the drive-ins. They're fun to do, and um, they're safe. So here it is, my conversation with, uh, I think, a third time returning, maybe fourth. I lose track now, you know. Uh, this is Tom Hall. Here only on Film One X Radio. All streets are cracked, and there's glass everywhere. And a baby stares out with motherless eyes. And the love of beauty unfuses the war. Traveling a man to the poet's court. Oh, 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 you man i'm hanging in how are you i'm sorry we haven't even been in touch once uh since this craziness you know no i know yeah i feel like everyone's busier than they've ever been somehow well yeah and i moved so i just oh uh, where are you yeah 
Uh, I'm living in Montclair, New Jersey. It's about uh, 20 miles. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I, and everybody else. Moved up, I moved up. To, I moved up to what they call here the HV, the Hudson Valley. Of course. Um, nice. But I, I was planning on doing it for a long time, and then you know, this year really just sort of moved up the the schedule a little bit. You know, totally. that's all. Although I'm yeah, still well, looked on as part of that. You know. Diaspora. Exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> Let's call it that. <laughs> One person's exodus, exodus is another. Exodus, yeah. Either way, it's a very a Jewish concept. Um, and yourself, how are you doing? Good, how thank you. you. I'm, in I'm in Brooklyn now. We're good. We're remote learning in Brooklyn. We were in New Jersey for, uh, we have a little place down by Atlantic City, uh, not too far from our, friends, oh. Amy, our friend Amy Hobby. Um, and um, we sort of, we, we were in a pod together down there for about six months. And then right when school was about to start, we came back. My wife works in TV production and they've just come back online now for starting to shoot. So she's uh, finally back to work after seven months, which is great. Yeah, no, I, we're, we're experiencing pretty similar uh, thing, excuse me, things here um, as well. And my son just moved in with me even though he's going to school in brooklyn yeah <laughs> you know exactly he's doable he's, uh, he's, <laughs> yeah i mean it's uh it, we make it work you know and um his mother had to go to los angeles for for the same reason you mentioned and uh so we're, we're figuring it out you know that's great but it is it is beautiful here i mean it's just spectacular you that's know. wonderful it's a great yeah. time of year for it that's my favorite spot uh this it, time of yeah. year it's a beautiful it place to autumn <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um and you know what what i was one of my major the major bummers for me per, on a personal level um you know i had a lot of there was a lot of anxiety and loss in my my spring and I, I was always, but I'm still looking forward to some sort of semblance and hoping that there would be a Montclair Film Festival and um, back in May. <laughs> but of course, it, it wasn't going to happen. Uh, but you managed to figure out by moving the festival. So now we're in October and the festival is beginning as we record this uh, in about uh, less than a week on October 16th. That's right, I'm next Friday. I'm hearing something in the background. Okay, I, and I'll mute when I'm not talking. No, no. Oh, I see. It is you. Okay. He's walking into. <laughs> this is cool. I shut my door is as that... well. Sorry. What's that? I was shutting the door between our rooms as well. Just oh, so okay. A little so more was, I was going to think. We have a we have a me. little remote learning going on for two oh, students of in of this course. School. Well, we. And we'll put up with anything. I mean, you know, we, we do what we got to do. And people are far more forgiving now that we're all, everybody's doing this type of thing anyway. But no, anyway, so, so long story short, I'm, I'm just happy to be able to that this is happening after all and that you guys didn't miss a year. And that I'm able to uh, support, you know, my favorite film, film festivals and my favorite uh, film programmers. And uh, so that includes you guys. Thank you. I'm glad that you're supporting us too. I'm glad that you're still oh, out there doing the the good work. Uh, it's it, indeed, indeed. Uh, yeah. Well, it's a uh, you know, 
it's a pleasure and a passion and and actually this kind of makes certain things easier about it as you can imagine but um i don't think that's your experience with running a festival tell me about that and let's talk about that because um you had the extra months but was it you know you're doing drive-ins virtual right yeah so yeah we we postponed the festival on march 14th uh it was originally scheduled for may 1st through the 10th and that came that march 14th came at a crucial moment for us because we were about to lay out a bunch of resources to execute the may festival staffing printing all of our marketing materials all the stuff that goes oh, into right. sort of the, of the nuts and bolts of putting on a film festival financially was about to happen right at that moment and at, we were you know south by southwest had just postponed um or canceled we were like in the middle of all that and we're like what should we do and new jersey was a hot spot at the time new york was a hot spot at the time and uh it's you know there's it felt uncertain obviously in retrospect it was like the most obvious choice we could have possibly like everyone had there was no choice to make um you know the response to the pandemic made the choice for us so uh at but in the moment we were deeply worried we had the full program done. Um, we had special guests done. We had venues ready. We had everything ready to go. And all of it went away uh, when we postponed. And so we had, we spent the summer, you know, reevaluating everything from how to deliver, like you mentioned, drive-in screenings to exploring virtual options, watching a lot of other festivals and sort of their best practices and how they were yeah. um, going online. And then trying to find a date that would work in the festival calendar. We didn't want to, you know, be in the way of other big festivals like New York and uh, Toronto and Venice and Playride oh. and all that stuff, the Hamptons now. Um, so we sort of tucked in right at the end or right in the middle of October, right after the Hamptons was over, uh, thinking that would be a good spot. And then of course, AFI moved up their dates <laughs> to be roughly the same time as us having traditionally been in, you know, November. Right. So, uh, it's all, I think everything is, everyone's been very collegial about the shift uh, on the festival side of things. The industry has responded very positively. We got a lot of great um, content, uh, films from mm -hmm. great filmmakers that never would have played the festival before. And, you know, today they just announced that Broadway is closed again through May of 2021. So I know, yeah, I I I'm feeling like October is going to be where we end up staying now. I can't imagine us pivoting to a May festival when Broadway's closed um, six months after we just put on our second, essentially put together a second program in, in six months and then do it again for May. Not going to happen. So I think we're going to oh, be an boy. October festival uh, from now on. So next year's our 10th anniversary. Uh, it'll be the 10th Montclair Film Festival in 2021. And we are already planning how we're going to deliver that uh and make it special somehow uh and hopefully i have one, a one vaccine idea. yes i'll take oh, it yeah. next year is uh the montclair film festival's 10th year anniversary and we're going to do a lot to celebrate that to support the montclair film festival but it also happens to be the 10th year of film wax radio oh my gosh now twins <laughs> <laughs> separated at birth separated at birth exactly <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, two monumentally <laughs> important <laughs> film. Yes, girders. Anyway. The two Yours girders and... of the the two girders of the film <laughs> the independent film world are having their tenth year anniversaries. Um, yeah, mine's. Uh, yeah, the show has been going for ten years. Congratulations! Next year. I have some. I may have uh, some changes, very positive changes. But what we'll we'll figure it out. Maybe we can. Maybe we can combine, do something special. That'd be great. But uh, you're always. But that's welcome. a lot. That's that's a lot of adjusting. Does it? Is there that move? Does that affect your life in any other way? I mean, yeah, I can see for sure this transitional period. Trying to pull off a second festival as soon as next May would have been uh, very, very challenging to say the least. And yeah, and, and then you, I don't know. And then we're still so up in the air. I mean, you know, as far as what people will be able to do but maybe by next fall with, with we'll have some sort of more robust kind of festivals back i'm i'm hopeful that that will happen a lot needs to change between now and then uh, right. for the positive so let's hope that that happens because we all need it i think but um yeah i uh you know we the thing that i'm most interested to see is everyone's been stuck at home watching you know on zoom calls watching films at home um theaters have been closed down the exhibition business is in real trouble um and so i'm hoping that festivals can continue to provide some sort of home and opportunity for filmmakers and films that you know who knows what's going to happen with exhibition um and that audiences will stick with the idea of you know transactional video on demand and renting a film and uh, being a part of using the festival platform on a virtual level. Um, our tickets just went on sale, <clears throat> excuse me, this week, this past week. And, you know, they are not the same numbers that we that we put up, not in terms of volume, I, I don't know, but in terms of revenue, it's nowhere close. Just the value proposition of, you know, four people on a couch watching a movie and as a family versus four individual ticket holders coming to a, to a cinema is completely different. Um, or, so econo or, economically, it's very different. Uh, we, we need to adjust to that as well and sort of figure out what the business model is going to look like, which we've been trying to do. Or even if you're doing drive-ins, you, you have maybe two or three people, a pod or however, in a car, same, same sort of situation. It's the same, Absolutely. It's the same number, you know. Drive-ins are very expensive on top of it. And we also have to cap attendance at drive-ins. Like we don't have a drive-in theater in Montclair, we have to build one from scratch, which means finding a roughly big enough parking lot to accommodate 100 cars. Our biggest venue during the, you know, a physical film festival holds 1600 people. So we're taking that down to 100 automobiles, you know, maybe 200 people. That's just not even close to where we were, which is fine. You know, it has its own overhead. We have to build everything from scratch and rent all of our gear. And um, that is not cheap. Um, they're not really money makers, but I do think like, you know, as a value proposition for the audience, it's nice to get out of the house and go see something on the big screen. Uh, so what um, about that? Yeah. Uh, are you, yeah. The company you're, you're relying on for that pop-up, uh, drive-in. Do we know those people? Um, we're doing that, this one ourselves. So we have, we've okay. done a couple of like minor, uh, rentals of gear, but we have our own tech team that's building this for us. So we, wow. we've, we've okay. judged, we've gone through uh, a lot of budgeting and uh, 
uh, research to f come up with a solution that we're, you know, we're going to have an, end up having an inflatable screen just because it was half price of a, essentially a fixed facility type thing. I don't know. Sure. Uh, it, it's, it's tough. Right. Really tough. The math is not good. <laughs> right. No, I, I understand. And so, you know, really the, the lesson for anybody watching here is, is to really understand that uh, there's a lot at risk and rather it, it, yeah, at risk here, there's a lot on the, in the balance. And uh, if you're a movie lover, you know, it's really important to get out there and support the festivals. And um, so, yeah, as you mentioned, exhibition, which is just the, the, the concept of walking, going into a movie theater may not even be here. So, you know, we're, I mean, it, I'm I'm really impressed with those theaters that have figured out how to, how to kind of keep it going, but it can't be, it's not a sustainable kind mm -hmm. of thing. It's got to, there's got to be an end to it. It's got to be, an, you know, some sort of next step to it, you know, that, that yeah. brings some money back. Otherwise these institutions are not going to be around. And that's yeah, the very, law, very, the law the, I was going to say, sorry to interrupt. The law in New Jersey no, right now is 25% capacity. There's no way that's a sustainable business. Any business that's operating at 25% of its you know, revenue potential is going to be in real trouble. Um, and it's better than zero, but it's still, it's not enough. Uh, and it's not, yeah. safe to, it's not safe to do more. We're not comfortable even operating at 25% capacity. I would never ask an audience to walk into a room I'm not comfortable walking into uh, as a, as a individual and, you know, we, I'm going to be very conservative with our organization about when we decide to try and do any sort of in-person events. We want the health and safety of people first. And, you know, we can't, you look around the country, you cannot trust people to do the right thing. Um, I'm not going to put, you know, 90% of people operating in good faith in a room where, you know, there's a perhaps a 10% problem. Um, so we, we need, we need a solution. I think that solves this problem for for people in a in a significant way which in my mind is a vaccine for covid um and hopefully that can be developed and distributed widely and we can figure out a way to make ventilated theaters and get people back indoors which is a lot to hope for for a nonprofit arts organization because i literally have no control over any of that and nor does really anyone in this space this is a this is a societal problem yeah yeah uh, we'll also see through the months how much real support and will there is to, 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 to find these solutions, you know, that are safe and, and possible. Like, uh, how many people really want to be in, have movie theaters, right? you know, and putting, you know, it really will come down to, uh, there's always been this conversation been going on as we've seen theaters begin to struggle, which is not a new thing. It's not. Was it didn't just happen as of March? It was. It's been going on for a long time, um, and having to really work hard to find ways of getting people to come in when they can sit at home. But there's always the rationale for why it's so important to share the the movie watching experience with people. And now we'll really put so I think this to the to, to the test when when it's in jeopardy and it may not be around. We'll see how people really support it. Uh, but of course, first it has to be safe. Right. Well, I mean, you what know. is your what is your feeling, Adam? Like, are you someone who's like, you know, champing at the bit to get back into a, a movie theater? Oh, um, like like now? Like, yeah. yeah. I think about it a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, my experience, much like I'm sure yours, is we see a lot of films, a lot of films. And the, the idea of just 
there was uh, there was been there was a, a kind of a fatigue about it like for many years i was happily going to press screenings industry screenings festival screenings you know i would come to the Montclair film festival mm. very excited every year and uh, but there's there you know in the last couple of years there's been a bit, a bit of a, a fatigue probably just needed some time to kind of go through what, what I was doing, which was seeing some more stuff at home than I used to. You know, I lived in New York City and I could go to every, you know, I could go out to press screenings, but I started feeling like, oh man, I just need, you know, but I, having said all that, I'm totally moving back to the opposite. Of like, so <laughs> the idea of not being able to do that now is a very bleak to me, you know, and I yeah. really, really, so I, you know, like even down here, I'm near Rhinebeck now and I, I, you know, we have uh, during the Woodstock Film Festival, uh, they use this this uh, movie theater. It's a sl just small, not ex exactly slick operation, you know. <laughs> and there's one. It's called Upstate Films. I mean, you may have heard of it. Mm -hmm. And there's one in uh, Saugerties, New York, and it's across the river. And uh, you know, I, I I know they're in tr real trouble. And and I I feel like I'll do whatever I got to do to save these theaters to help in any way I can, you know. And yeah. Uh, so I wonder, I wonder, one of the things I'm thinking about now is we sort of market the festival and, and talk to people about participating in the festival is, you know, do they see a festival ticket at this point as some sort of help or is it just like pure transactional interest in a certain film or a certain title or a certain event? Like I want to see that I will buy a ticket or are people like, you know what, this is an institution that I want to see survive. I'm going to buy a ticket or a pass to this. I may or may not watch everything that I buy a ticket for, but I'm, I need to offer my support. One of the things that we've really done is stepped away from fundraising this year um, huh. because every, you know, it's an, an, a very difficult message to go to people with an arts message when there's COVID relief, there's Black Lives Matter, there's political campaigns happening right now. All of these things are drawing a lot of attention away from arts funding. So we tried to make it as, you know, we're, one of our messages that we decided to focus on was, we still need your support. We're giving you something in exchange for that support. It's a movie, it's an event, it's a drive-in, it's some sort of, you know, activity at the film festival. But like a direct appeal for fundraising has been a real challenge, I think, for arts organizations and film organizations in general, just given the tenor of society right now. I have two feelings as you spoke. Uh, one is, um, you know, just on a practical level, it seems like a survey would be very handy this year for you guys to find out people's experiences and specifically like what, what was their feeling about, you know, or their motives for buying tickets and passes, et cetera. Um, and, you know, well, yeah. The other thing is I just found myself getting so frustrated because the freaking arts, man, have had to rationalize their existence in this country for year after year mm. and about scrounging for the, uh, you know, scraps for, for scraps um, where, you know, other countries, westernized countries and most of Europe where they, the government subsidizes a lot of this. Yeah. You know, and what, yet we have to beg, uh, I say we, but you know, I don't have an arts organization per se. But it's uh, it just gets to me, and so now it's come to where there's even a, a sort of uh, 
I don't know what you want to call not an uh, a self-consciousness that you guys have as an organization where you, I mean, I, I, I get it. And I think you made a good choice, but it, you know, the art shouldn't have to apologize for, right. for, for fundraising people. Yeah. It's an, it's an essential need. Uh, I I'm sorry, but people are, are, are going to feel, get into a, if they aren't, I mean, people are already depressed. So, you know, what better way to uh, combat that but the arts? And uh, I was going to ask you, and then I thought better of it, but maybe now I will. Like next year, what films are, or isn't the pool of films going <laughs> right. to be significantly different than it is this year <laughs> when most of the films that you guys have programmed next week were made before the pandemic? Whereas right. next year, that won't be the case. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that there'll be things figured out quite well, but at the same time, think about all the festivals that are grappling with that. And then the following year. Uh, so, you know, I, I feel uh, very aggravated this country's, you know, priorities in so many ways, but that, that's another one, you know, so there. Yeah. I just I, saw, that's my I beef. just saw a great, um, <laughs> response. There was a, some, a minister, I think, or somebody in the UK who was like, you know, arts people need to retrain because it's not coming back. Do you know what I mean? Uh, like the, if you really want to get ahead of the curve, bail on the arts as a, as a arts employee or arts worker. And I was, I was like so upset and offended that that is the, uh, the concept. On the other hand, I think people are like, you know, looking at their bank accounts and looking in the mirror every day and thinking like, what, how are we going to make it? It's a real issue. Like you said, it's very frustrating. We, we I, I feel a tremendous responsibility to our staff. Um, we were very, you know, just in full transparency, we were very fortunate to get a PPP loan um, uh, from the government, which allowed us to keep our entire staff employed uh, during this time, assuming that the festival, you know, brings in some revenue, maybe we host some sort of event by the end of the year and we can hang on and get to the next one. Uh, we will be able to keep everybody on board. Um, but that is a, it is a, it is rough out there, like really rough. I don't think we're alone. I don't, and I, I'm sure every arts manager, executive director is dealing with this issue as well. I know like my friend, my friends at the Film Society of Lincoln Center had some layoffs that they had to execute. Um, other organizations have shut down for temporary periods of time. We're seeing theaters close. Um, and that doesn't, that doesn't even count like Broadway, live music, um, all of these other areas of our of our arts economy, you know, museums right. are, are back at lower capacity, but they're still shedding staff. It's just really rough and there's no stimulus. There's no stimulus for the arts. There's no, there's none. So it's been, aside from like the payroll protection program, which was a huge help to us, that, right. that's been a rough, it's been a rough year. Yeah. I oh, know. I know. And I, I guess what I was saying was that, you know, had we been, had this country considered the arts more essential, far more essential, over the last decades, yeah, you know, we the weathering this period would be a lot different experience. So, you know, I think you're right about that for sure. Um, and and I hope that 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 maybe that British person, maybe that's the message. People have to know that arts being in real jeopardy, it's a serious thing. And and that you know, okay, if you're willing to lose the arts, uh, look, think really think consider consider seriously what the life will be like without arts. Totally. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, I'm sure they're very talented musicians, but if your idea of a concert is going to, you know, this, 
sidewalk and watching a guy plays guitar, that, that might be your option. It's not a bad option. Sometimes it's a great option, but it is also, you know, the experiences, the choices and the, the different types of experiences you can have going to a cafe, a coffee shop or to a, uh, uh, or to an arena. I mean, there's a whole, you know, bunch range. of experiences. When, yeah. Range. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to ask, what was it? Oh, yeah. So you brought up uh, also, uh, you know, the, t- the, the delay in, in, in um, scheduling the festival this year, which, again, I want to tell people is October 16th through the 25th. Well, tickets are clearly on sale right now for, for both uh, Montclair Film Festival drive-ins as well as uh, virtual screenings at home. Uh, but um, is there been, I know that... Um, what is it called? The uh, the organization. I'm blanking for a second. It's usually right before Sundance, where you know. Fest- oh, the Art House Convergence. Art House Convergence Festival course. Alliance. Yep. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just wondering how much how much you know uh, sharing and uh, uh, working together, cooperative kind of approach there was in terms of sharing information about. So, because you you know launching this in October, what a what a that's that was an advantage for you guys yeah we i haven't really done a lot of outreach to other festival leaders what i've done is um give spent money at other festivals <laughs> because i think a they could use really? the support yeah yes, absolutely sure. they could use the support and i can learn from a consumer point of view what the experience oh, right. is like and for me that's that true. was that was more important um than coordinating uh, other stuff. One thing I will say, I think the people who've been the real pillars of saving the day have been the distributors who are willing to leverage in and, mm. and filmmakers who've been willing to leverage in their work to festivals without a, you know, a theatrical window of any note. Um, IFC was heroic this summer with their drive-ins and horror. Uh, I think they did a great job. And now we're seeing like a lot of the streaming companies uh, step in with, you know, Hulu in particular, although Netflix has sort of bailed on the fall festival season in terms of the films, but they're getting talent out there. Um, they've really, without that, the, that content and that interesting, those interesting films for, since March, um, we would have been in real trouble. Like you mentioned, like, what's it going to look like next year? This year could have been a disaster if everyone just held everything. There would be nothing to show. That's um, right. And so those, those folks taking a chance and supporting, not everyone's done so, it and not everyone's yeah, a lot done of filmmakers, equally. In other words, a lot of filmmakers wanted to hold on to their films to see if they could do proper uh, uh, theater, theater uh, theatrical screenings or theater screenings. Um, so, but instead of yeah. like releasing on virtually, which is a very different, um, it's not probably what they were hoping for. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I get that disappointment as well. It's not not what we were hoping for either. But without the without those uh, projects in the fe- in the festival programs, uh, there wouldn't be festivals. So people taking a chance on the time uh, and partnering with with virtual festivals has been the part that I found most heartening and the most collaborative. Like you know, we don't have premiere status. We're not worried about world premiering work. I know there are a lot of articles written about like. Uh, New York, Venice, Toronto, all come can all coming together and saying we're going to take a year off from competing with each other and we're going to share titles and uh, you know do all that, which has been great. I think it's really opened the door for a lot of festivals like ours. We're showing stuff that was at New York. We're showing stuff that would would have been at Toronto or was at Toronto. Um, so can I just say, uh, can you yeah remember what you were going to say because I want to just interject a funny anecdote, which is real brief, which is that around the time that 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 cooperative uh you know world's world festival 
or international festival uh, cooperative rather was happening between I think among rather can what did you say what were the other Tribeca well yeah Tribeca was the one that was on YouTube I, I was referring okay. more to like everybody sharing like nomad land and stuff no no I got fall. you yeah, yeah. I just I just remember though I want to share this with you I don't know if you I'm sure you saw it but uh, on the Stephen Colbert show had he had De Niro on I yes relatively early on when he went when he was doing a show from home and he De Niro was talking about Tribeca and these other festivals, Can and the other, the other festivals were in Toronto or not Toronto, but what were the other ones? Anyway, um, uh, <laughs> they were doing this and uh, Colbert said, Montclair, <laughs> you know, he kind of, <laughs> <laughs> kind of get, I don't I like even think De Niro heard it, but I heard of it. Of course he like, didn't. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for noticing. Colbert yeah, is he, big. Yeah. Stephen's uh, wife, Evie, is our board president. Um, they live in town. We work very closely with that, uh, Stephen and Evie on the festival. Evie's, you know, a day-to-day -day, uh, involved with the organization. And I, we talk all the time and um, keep them uh, involved. And they're very much invested in our success, which is a wonderful asset to have as a festival. We would not oh, be yeah. where we are today if Stephen didn't do an annual fundraiser for us, wasn't involved in the festival, like having him on he and Evie both involved in what we do has been crucial. So, uh, you know, I'm very lucky. I've been, I've worked at a lot of festivals that have had varying levels of celebrity support um, from not much to, you know, people like Ben Stiller at Nantucket, uh, Alec Baldwin in the Hamptons, et cetera. Um, and I know how lucky we are that they are so hands-on and so involved and care so much about what we do. So they're true believers and not just Montclair, but I think in film festivals, as an economics and cultural engine for communities. Their community is Montclair, that, so they're involved with us, but I know they believe strongly in the power of festivals to, to be a sort of backbone of local arts communities. So. But the point I was going to make about the festival collaborations, <laughs> which Sorry you, to interrupt you. asked I me to apologize. remember. No, no, it's, yeah. it's totally fine. Um, was that the fact that uh, everyone put aside premier requirements, I think opened the doors for distributors to be more generous and flexible uh, and reimagine re their festival strategies for the fall. Um, and that allowed us, to, when we moved to October, to have opportunities to show work. Like we're opening with Nomadland. Uh, we are right. closing with One Night in Miami. We've got Ammonite as our centerpiece. Uh, we're showing Minari as our virtual centerpiece. So those are films that were great, you know, A24 and Neon and, uh, Searchlight Pictures, all those people, uh, Amazon Studios partnering with us uh, has been a real boon to our ability to host a festival. So I really do think they, they've been sort of heroic in stepping up and supporting festivals. Um, there wouldn't, I don't know, our, I don't know how our audience would respond if we didn't have, there's no films, there's no festivals. So again, I, I, you're asking what I learned, you know, or collaborated with on other festivals. I think, I think st everyone's standing down and trying to support the overall health of the industry has been a, a big help. Well, I'm glad you mentioned those, uh, all those uh, films and those events, because I was going to bring it up. And oh. so you, you <laughs> sorry. No, no, I'm glad you saved <laughs> me the trail. I want to make sure I want to also uh, respect your time. It's, it's, uh, I'm sure you have a very uh, busy day ahead of you uh, as you guys are leading up to the, uh, the, the festival in a matter of days. Uh, this is the ninth Montclair Film Festival. Again, October 16th through the 25th. The website is 
montclairfilm.org. That's right. How did I know that? <laughs> <laughs> and um, also you can follow them on, on I'm sure all me, uh, social media platforms, but we are tickets at, are at Montclair film everywhere. Right. I mean, you can be in uh, anywhere in the world and see the Montclair Film Festival or? Yeah, we especially, you know, our um, conversations and Stephen Colbert's doing a live read uh, oh. at the festival of a, of a unproduced TV pilot. And we, we just announced the cast today, but he's got Bob Odenkirk, Keegan-Michael Key, Dana Carvey, Jackie Hoffman participating in this live read. That's a global, I mean, never heard of any anywhere. of them. <laughs> never heard. Of. Oh, wait a minute. I know he, Jackie Hoffman. She's, she's funny. Yeah. <laughs> she is funny. She is funny. Um, no, I do actually know Jackie Hoffman. I've tried to get her on here before. She's, she's great. She has a uh, piss and vinegar. Cheryl Crow has a um, cameo in this live read as well. Wow. Um, it's, it's a lot of, yeah, it's a lot of fun. So that one's global for sure. All of our conversations, we're doing a salute to Aaron Sorkin this year. He's got a new film, Trial of the Chicago 7, that's coming out on Netflix. And he and Steven are doing a sort of long form in conversation, uh, which I'm excited to hear ahead of the election. In fact, I think that is going to be recorded today. Um, so there's a lot going on, uh, a lot of films. We have like a hundred films in the program, Conversation, Santa Miller is doing a conversation with us. Um, just a really great group this year. And again, it's down to the generosity of everyone wanting to participate and give us a chance in this new space to show what we've got. We just, you know, um, we're hoping people, like I said, realize it's not just, do I wanna watch this, but this organization and all organizations like ours need support right now. So step in, grab a ticket, help out if you can. And you get something in exchange. You get a program, which is great. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Adam. It's great to talk to you always. And uh, I look forward to our twin birthday in 2021 as we celebrate the 10th anniversary of Film Wax and Montclair Film. That'll be a lot of fun. No, we, w we will celebrate, I promise. Oh, my God, totally. All right, have a great festival. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank Good to you. see you. Bye. Same here. Albert turned the Tijuana Brass into gold, earning 15 gold and 14 platinum records, winning nine Grammy Awards between 1966 and 2014, and receiving the National Medal of Arts from President Barack Obama in 2012. Herb co-founded the indie label A&M Records with his business partner Jerry Moss, which recorded artists as varied as Carol King, Cat Stevens, The Carpenters, Janet Jackson, Peter Frampton, Joe Cocker, Quincy Jones, Sergio Mendez, and The Police. A&M would go on to become one of the most successful independent labels in history. He has shown his striking work as an abstract painter and sculptor worldwide. And through the Herb Alpert Foundation, has given significant philanthropic support to educational programs in the arts nationwide, from the Harlem School of the Arts and Los Angeles City College to CalArts and UCLA 
the documentary explores all of the above. John Scheinfeld is the uh, director and our guest today. He has uh, directed a number of uh, music-related documentaries, including most recently, as I mentioned before, Who is Harry Nilsson and Why is Everybody Talking About Him? Chasing Train, the John Coltrane documentary, The U.S. versus John Lennon. Uh, he has a new documentary he's going to talk about coming out called Sergio Mendez and the Key of Joy. But first, here he is uh, talking about his new documentary. It's currently available on multiple streaming platforms, I think Amazon Prime included. Filmmaker John Scheinfeld here on Film Wax Radio. Good evening. I'm Herb Alpert, and welcome. Herb Albert is a cultural icon. Funky. Herb Albert is always the coldest person in the room. He's always just herpy. Tijuana Brass became that universal sound. It's the happiest music in existence. I was born in Royal Heights, east of L.A. My father came to this country when he was 16 years old on a boat by himself. When I was in about the third grade, I happened to pick up the trumpet because it fit in my hand. One day I was playing and one of the neighbors yelled out, hold it down! And my mom opened the window and she said, he's going to play louder. He had a jazz propensity, but it was influenced by the mariachis. Tijuana Brass was everywhere. We have been playing music and the crew reports uh, Herb Albert sounds great. 1966, five songs in the top ten, stole more records than the Beatles. We were selling out these huge arenas in three minutes. And at that point, I realized, man, I'm rich, I'm famous, but I'm miserable. Nice to see you. Likewise. So when did we do Harry? That was a long time ago. Was well, a long time ago. Yeah, it would have been in the offices of Kino Lorber. And uh, yeah. 2010. Wow. So we get together every 10 years, whether we have to or not. And we never look any older in the process. That's amazing. <laughs> By the way, in my tinkering around, or I shouldn't say tinkering, I'll say searching through my tubs of my my years at Sony Music, I amassed quite a bit of music, but um, and just my own collection. But as I was going through my collection, I, I just came across these, which was nice. Ah, there you go. Right. Yeah. From your wonderful. What? You, what I don't remember. What, what did you do at Sony? I was just a cog, a corporate cog. Yeah. <laughs> I worked in the creative department um, with the art directors and the printers and the preprint folks and the retouching. And then I also, I, at a certain point I started overseeing, they had a business to business website, which was a place for advertisers and, you know, other third party business partners who could, who wanted to, you know, maybe it was a performance space and they needed artwork or press information. And they'd go to that site. And I was sort of like the contact for, for help and for QAing all the stuff that went on there, all the artwork, et cetera. Ah, right. Sorry, so, just adjusting here. Oh, that's, yeah. Do you miss it? Yeah. I enjoyed yeah. that. I enjoy. I was good. And I enjoy the, the, you know, and it was fun. And you got tickets, of course, to see lots of live music, which right. was a nice perk, you know. Um, and then there was the music that you also, the, the packages, you know, you just get about every, anything you wanted. So at a certain point, you know, they were distributing the Shot Factory. So 
Here we go. <laughs> the herb stuff. Yeah. Here yeah. we go. So I, I didn't find all of them, but I found the majority of my collection. That's a fun one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Uh, and and I couldn't find a you know the the, of course the, uh, what was it the delights these uh, whipped cream. Oh, that's whipped cream uh, and other delights. Other some uh, famous the famous one for all of us young boys. <laughs> yes, exactly. I appreciate the the uh, attention that it got. I am the documentary Herb Albert is ellipse. Yeah. The last thing I'll say is I'm wearing in honor of John Lennon's birthday, 80th birthday. There you go. Yeah. Today. I'm eager to, to hear the new remixes. Uh, they're putting out a, a greatest hits today. Uh, so I put in my order. We'll see. But uh, oh, I got to get that too. Uh, I loved uh, what they did is, you know, Lennon never really liked his sound of his voice. So he, particularly when he was solo, he would mix it back uh, a bit. And uh, I think when, when they put out a, a Imagine a couple of years ago, they, they remixed and put the vocals much more prominent. And I just thought that was great. And oh. hoping that will be the case for the new stuff. But do you know who mixed it or remixed it, I should say? I don't. Okay. Uh, I know uh, it's a long time ago now, but I know Yoko had some uh, engineers that she really liked, but I don't know, it could have been the guys at Abbey Road, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, uh, anyway, they did a, on the Imagine album, anyway, they did a really nice job. Yeah, I think I, I did, I, yeah, I got a couple of those. Anyway, yeah, I'm gonna, thanks for reminding me, because I do, I would like to pick that up. I've been, uh, you know, kind of going through it and playing some of the stuff. I mean, you know, I like to play as well. So it, he, he's a, uh, just, you know, just one of those uh, icons, you know. Um, well, I was, was pleased I got the, I, I participated in the recent uh, Facebook slash YouTube premiere. Ah, good. I mean, when you were making this documentary, I don't suppose that you thought that that's how you're going to premiere the film, did you? No, we had uh, intended Herb Alpert is to be a uh, full-out theatrical release. And uh, we were going to do film festivals, and then we were going to be uh, in uh, art theaters across the country, and uh, uh, starting in May of 2020, and the virus put an end to that. So uh, like uh, every other film distributor, our distributor had to get very creative and say, what's the most interesting uh, a way to get the film out to the most uh, number of people. And uh, I, we weren't the first on Facebook Live to do this, but I think we may have been second or third. So it was quite early on. Uh, so the notion was that we'll uh, premiere uh, one night, one time only, uh, uh, free screening on Facebook Live, and that would build up buzz and uh, create word of mouth, and then um, we would show up the next day on uh, Amazon Prime and iTunes and other platforms, which is what happened. Um, and uh, so I was excited. I just, I'm real proud of this picture. I was just glad we could get it out, and I hope as many people as possible will see it. Uh, well, I certainly think a lot of people will see it. I, you have uh, everybody, if they're not an active fan, they have their parents' collection, because uh, those albums were a staple in everybody's growing up. There they were, they were at, least a, at least a couple, if not more, Herb Alpert records in that collection. 
right? I mean, I, 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 I know you grew up with it. Yes, I absolutely did. Uh, uh, as I, I've been saying uh, for the last few weeks, uh, my making uh, this film was all my mother's fault because uh, she had uh, uh, quite a few Herb Alpert albums at home and would play uh, them and dance around the house. And so my first memory is this music is very happy music. It makes people smile and want to dance. And uh, I just thought that was uh, terrific. And uh, Herb was all, always on my radar after that. And when the opportunity presented itself for me to meet with him about uh, doing a film, uh, I was thrilled and uh, thought back to those uh, old days. But you know, in the, in the 60s, Herb Alper and the team went brass were everywhere. They were in TV commercials, uh, they were on the radio. Uh, I, I think only the Beatles sold more records in that kind of 65, 64 to 68, 69 period uh, than Herb did. And, uh, and then of course, um, people may remember the dating game uh, where they used five uh, Herb songs every week to introduce The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, where the date was gonna be and, and many other things. So it was kind of ubiquitous. He could have just made, I guess, a nice living off of that. Alone. Alone. But as we show in the film, uh, there are many different aspects to Herb, hence the title Herb Albert is, because he is many different things to many different people. Yeah, well said. And uh, so he grew up in a poor Mexican village, as we know, the son, the son of two mariachi uh, parents. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you've been reading the wrong press release, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> it won't be the first time. <laughs> no, it's uh, what. Well, you know, we talk about people's perceptions, or, or you know, uh, I think a lot of people. And you do. You again. You do. Uh, it does come up in the film. You do uh, discuss it. Is this idea that he was because of his dark, uh, swarthy looks and and he you know and he looked great in the charo what what kind of outfit is it he would wear the, the they're sort of mariachi gear right, right. the outfits yeah. and he looked so good in them uh that most people thought he was of uh latin right uh, birth i mean but it I wasn't the case at all yeah not not at all uh, uh in fact in our film uh, billy bob thornton tells the the great story of of growing up in arkansas and thinking, you know, his name may have been uh, uh, Americanized Martinez or something, and they, he changed <laughs> it to Herb Alpert and uh, was making all this great music. But he actually was born in East LA in a in a very uh, middle class to lower middle class uh, neighborhood, and then eventually moved uh, moved west. But um, in a in a family of immigrants, and uh, really um, uh, took advantage of the opportunities that came his way. Uh, well, talk about how you, uh, some of the other folks that you r r uh, rounded up for the documentary and uh, did most everybody, I mean, it's quite a, a range of people. Uh, I mean, you have Sting in there, for instance, who's very present in the film. Uh, and you would originally think, well, come on, I don't believe that Herb Alpert would be, uh, in, uh, 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 have much musical influence over Sting. And maybe it wasn't so much that, but he did also, as part of his history, he created, he co-created A&M Records, which was the home for the police, uh, right? They, uh, right, they were the, the, uh, the, um, the label. Yeah, well, um, 
again, we, we sort of talk about people think of Herb as, as Herb Alpert and the team on a brass or Herb, Herb Alpert, the, uh, the artist that did Rise, but there's so much more uh, to his life and his career. And then one of those aspects was A&M Records. And uh, he was the A, Jerry Moss was the M. And uh, they built uh, the most successful independent record label in the history of the music business. And uh, Herb discovered Sergio Mendez. He discovered the Carpenters. They, uh, they created a wonderful home for Peter Frampton and Joe Cocker and Sting and the police. And while I, 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 I'm not qualified really to say if, if Herb influenced those people musically, I can certainly say that he influenced them professionally. They created an environment at A&M Records that allowed these and so many other artists to do their best work and to really enable them to be successful. And so I think that was terrific. So when I started off with the film, Adam, I wanted to uh, cast it much like you would cast a scripted feature or television show. I wanted different perspectives, different voices, if you will, who would come at uh, uh, speaking about Herb from, from different points of view. So from the A&M years, we have Sting, we have Sergio Mendez, we have Quincy Jones, we have Richard Carpenter. I want uh, to get Jerry to him. Yeah I, was, yeah, I was looking forward to talking about him. But also uh, we have people who can talk about um, Herb's influence on the greater culture. And we have people like Bill Moyers, who is wonderfully eloquent. Um, and, uh, um, and he was I, able to put right Herb Alpert in a context and yeah. Yeah, and I also wanted uh, some younger artists that could speak to the influence of Herb. And uh, Questlove is in the film and, and speaks quite eloquently and enthusiastically about how Herb has influenced him. And you wouldn't really put him and Herb together in any significant way. But what he talks about is uh, that uh, whenever he has a bad day, um, he, he will put on his Herb Alpert playlist and it never fails to put a smile on his face and make him feel better. And I think that's uh, clearly what Herb's music does to so many people. But we also wanted people that worked with Herb. So we have uh, Terry Lewis and Jimmy Jam who were big, big uh, uh, hip hop producers. Uh, and then some members of family and friends of Herb, uh, uh, legendary record uh, producer, uh, Lou Adler. So it's quite a wide range of people, and all of which combined to to bring to life Herb as a person. Yeah, I mean, he was always so true to himself. He didn't. It did nothing. He did really felt that force. Like he did uh, take some artistic risks as an artist as well, but none of them felt especially overly forced in a way. And he always seemed true to himself. Um, you know, which is I think part of the explanation for his success. He also seemed so widely um, regarded by people that, you know, I mean, as you mentioned, some of those folks, I mean, these are relationships that have sustained over many decades in some cases. Yes, that's very tough to do in the music business, which is- uh, Anywhere. Uh, which is, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. And it's a bit of a dog eat dog uh, business. Um, I, I can honestly tell you in the uh, two years I was working on this project, I didn't hear one negative thing about her. He, he is admired. Uh, people look to him as an inspiration in so many ways. Um, and uh, if I could use one word for to describe Herb and everything he does, I would say authentic. He That's just is the Herb Alpert that people will see on screen and Herb Alpert is, is uh, the same Herb Alpert off screen. Same guy. 
Yeah. Uh, he, he operates very much from his heart and very much from gut instinct. Um, and he's he in the film, it turns out. Yeah, you know? <laughs> you, well, I mean, it's not just a film, of, it's not just about his past, it's very much about, about you know, he's, he's in, the, in the film, he's in, uh, throughout, and he talks about his Yeah, he's uh, 85 years old, and he is as active now as he has ever been. Before the virus, he was doing 50 or 60 dates a year uh, out on the road with his band. He uh, spends every day either uh, recording music or painting or sculpting or practicing. And he, as Lonnie says in the film, his wife, uh, uh, Herb doesn't, uh, Herb leads a creative life. He really does. Um, sorry, I had a little technical gaffe here. I apologize. Fixing this problem. Bear with me one moment. Sure. Sorry about that. No problem. All right. Okay. Hopefully things weren't lost. The audio from that wasn't lost. Um, so talk also, I mean, you know, we just went over a lot of the people that are, that you uh um, included in the cast, as you put it, uh, Richard Carpenter. I, I just don't remember. It took me a minute to re to recognize him. I I mean, because he's just so private. Yes, how, he you know, is. Documentaries, uh, or how, how? I mean, is that like how rare is it that you got him in a documentary like that? Well, I, I can't speak uh, for Richard specifically because I have uh, not really had any dealings with him except okay. for this. Uh, but in terms of booking him for this one, it was like, yeah, sure. When do you want to do it? Uh, really? He, was that he easy? Did, he feels very beholden to Herb for his career and uh, loves Herb and was very happy to talk about him. Uh, I think in general, though, Adam, I, I, I've had very good luck with uh, the films that I've done. We've gotten a lot of, been blessed to have a lot of really big names, some very difficult to get a hold of. But again, with casting them, I'm always looking for uh, who has a reason to be in this? Who has, who has something to say? Not just, oh, let's arbitrarily have so-and-so in here. And so with, with a lot of these subjects, uh, uh, they are things that people want to talk about. I mean, we, when I was doing the U.S. versus John Lennon, we got um, Walter Cronkite, who then was doing very little. But he, does very, he even does less now. Yeah, don't you think? <laughs> but uh, then he just, he thought this was a great subject. He hadn't been asked to talk about it very often. And so he wanted to do it. Oh, I, I see now. So you, uh, got, you, got, you got second best, or you got, uh, uh, maybe I shouldn't say second best, but you, your Bill Moyers is your Walter Cronkite. Bill Moyers is our Walter Cronkite here. Very eloquent, very knowledgeable, and can speak uh, to many different aspects of of Herb's life, including uh, the philanthropy, which is a very important part of his life. Yeah, and the towards the end, we see the latest, uh, the late the uh, towards the end of your documentary again. It's called Herb Albert is Ellipse. Uh, we we see uh, him uh, Herb in his maybe one of his latest, if not his latest, uh, um, you know project, I guess, uh, philanthropic, philanthropic project, correct, with the kids. Uh, he saw that, I guess he read in the news that uh, this Harlem dance school for children was going to close. Uh, Harlem School of the Arts. 
Harlem School of the Arts, I stand corrected, uh, was going to close because, of course, you know, just our economics or what have you. And he said, no, that can't be. We have to do what we can. And uh, sure enough, he was able to uh, help save the school, right, and raise money and awareness. He, uh, he put them on solid financial footing. So they will be, their doors will stay open for many years to come. That's wonderful. And I think the whole community benefits from that. But you know, it's interesting over the, again, over the course of the two years that I was working on this film, uh, I heard many stories of Herb's generosity, um, far too many to put into the, the film. But there were many stories that he doesn't even like to take credit for, where uh, former employees at A&M, he, he paid for their health care, he paid scholarships for their kids to go to school, or um, he'll read in the paper about somebody who needs uh, a piece of medical equipment and he'll take care of it. He is a very sensitive, thoughtful, and generous man. How, just, I mean, how, uh, how much wealth has this guy been able to uh, build in, over his career? Significant, I would imagine. Well, he, he certainly made significant money from uh, the Tijuana Brass record sales and Rise and others. And then uh, but then when he, sold, when he sold the record company in 1989, right. um, made a significant amount of money, which uh, enabled him to uh, also be philanthropic in, in, in a major way. And so in the last 10 years, he's given away at least $150 million to arts and education programs across the country. He really wants to give kids uh, opportunities and a leg up that, that he didn't have when he was growing up. Well, just take this one example of the Harlem School of the Arts, and you, you have to think about all of the kids that will come out of that program, and, um, you know, or many, many of whom will become artists, and that they will, in some, if not large part, have Herb Albert to, to thank for that, and that, uh, you know, whether or not he, he wants that attention or not, that's, you know, he's, he certainly has um, made a great impact. Well, you know, anytime you start a start shooting a film, uh, you always shoot far more material than you can use. Good and advice. That, Let me write that down. <laughs> that was the case here. Uh, and to, to, to make the very point uh, you were just bringing up, uh, I interviewed about 10 uh, students who have benefited from Herb's uh, generosity in one way or another. And they've never met Herb, may never meet Herb, but their lives have been dramatically transformed because of Herb. And uh, to see them talk about that, explain that, tell us how they feel about it, it was really special. And I, I really tried uh, to fit it into the film. We tried these in, in many different places and they always seemed to slow the storytelling down and we were quite long. Right. Uh, so, uh, also, I mean, after if you put too much of it in, I think that then Herb or the, your subject might feel uh, maybe self-conscious about it. Like, you know, <laughs> it's a, uh, I mean, people do it all over social media, of course. You know, here I am uh, feeding the homeless at uh, or at a soup kitchen. But, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's a comfortable place for somebody like that. Um. Herb uh, refers to himself as a card-carrying introvert. He doesn't really put himself out there very often, which was why it was a, 
a, a wonderful thing that he participated as much as he did in this documentary. Well, and he is in his 80s, so maybe he just felt a slight bit of, if his story was going to be told, it's the time to do it, you know? It's uh, Well, he um, and I spent about three months getting to know each other before we started shooting anything. Is that right? And I think uh, it really uh, enabled us to build a relationship and trust. build a certain level of trust. Yeah. And so when I asked him to do things, it was like, yeah, okay. So, uh, and we also discovered that, that more of Herb's personality came out uh, when he was walking and talking as opposed to when he was sitting down. So uh, we decided we were going to take him back to the house uh, in, in which he grew up. We, the first time he'd been there in 50 some years. We took him to his elementary school. We took him back to the A&M lot. We had him walking around his uh, beautiful property. And all of that, I think, really made him feel comfortable. And many more stories came out that we were able to include in the film. You mentioned, uh, let's see, we talked about the Harry Nilsson documentary, which is called Who in the World is Harry Nilsson? And why does called, who, is, who is Harry Nilsson and why is everybody, why is everybody talking, talking about, about him? him? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Great title, by the way, if not robust. Uh, <laughs> and then you have uh, the U.S. versus John Lennon. John Lennon. That's John right. Lennon. And also, uh, you, you can see it behind me here, uh, did one called Chasing Train, the John okay. Coltrane documentary. I saw that one, too. I remember watching that in preparation for my first conversation with you uh, years yeah. ago, 10 years ago, as we've established. My question is this. You've brought, we know those three documentaries are about three, sadly, uh, on John Lennon's 80th birthday today, uh, nice, a nice kind of uh, symmetry there. But you, you've made three documentaries about three musicians who have died before, you know, and you, before you're making the film. Herb is very much alive. Um, is, was that, what's that like? What would, is, is it, is it, do you prefer that? Or? You know, uh, uh, both approaches come with their own set of challenges. Uh, I have done my share of artists who are no longer with us. And, uh, um, the challenges there are how do you get their point of view across when they are not here to make it? So you have to rely on people that knew them or if you have, I mean, Chasing Train, for example, what I was able to do is um, John Coltrane never did a, a TV interview, only did a handful of radio interviews and the sound wasn't good enough for me to use, but he did a lot of print interviews. So I was able to take his words that would inform different aspects of the storytelling and I decided I want to get a movie star to read him. So long story short, we got Denzel Washington and he speaks the words of John Coltrane. Um, in, this, in this case, uh, I have Herb here to tell his, help tell his own story. Uh, and that's great. Um, uh, challenges, of course, uh, are uh, um, what is it uh, that he'll decide to share? What, what will he feel comfortable doing and not doing and all of that. And, Again, mm. I think the, the three months that we spent uh, before we uh, started shooting anything were really instrumental, you'll pardon the expression, uh, <laughs> with getting Herb to do everything that, that we needed to do. And he felt really comfortable and really got into it. And we had right. a really uh, nice time making the I, whole thing. But yeah, no, I, don't really have a, I don't really have an opinion, uh, a preference one way or the other. Well, um, that's clear. I just love, tell, I just love telling a, a good story. Well said, uh, you know, but as you were talking about it, you know, it's kind of, I could imagine you might get a living 
uh, subject for your documentary, maybe in the future, and they may actually, like certain leaders we know, want to give a particular narrative that might not really reflect the reality. Uh, you know, maybe they toot their own horn or something. I don't know. <laughs> I was trying to. I can't, I can't imagine who you're talking about, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. And I was trying to make the uh, toot the horn for her, but her, her yeah. was able to play the horn and not necessarily toot his own horn at the same time because he comes across very, uh, uh, I don't know, just modest and down to earth. He is. Yeah. Very, very self deprecating, <laughs> very down to earth. He's the kind of a guy you can sit and have a conversation with about many different subjects. Yeah. And I, you know, for me, that's one of the fun things. I, I, I'm a Midwest kid. I grew up in, uh, born in Chicago, raised in Milwaukee. And uh, that's middle uh, and, Midwest, all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's sort of uh, amazing to me that I can now call him and other people friends whose work I admired from afar growing up. And that's, that's sort of an amazing thing about this job that I have. It is a perk, isn't it? Yeah. It's great. Uh, I've made some, I mean, uh, these are not films, but I, I can relate. I've, I've, you know, sometimes I'll want to bring on people and I'll include you in this because I, after I met you, I was a big fan of Harry Nilsson. That's why, why I wanted to cover, you know, uh, your earlier documentary about Harry. That's what drew me. But then I've, since I've kept an eye and I've always wanted to, to get you on the podcast, um, because there's certain people you just uh, you you know you're interested in or you connect with or and th and then there are people you of course I've sat across from people that I grew up watching their movies and I'm like I can't believe I'm sitting here talking to this person and then there's uh, certain people even some of those who you actually become sort of friends with and then maybe even a tinier group that you actually are real friends with uh, a meaningful friendship so, so you know it's a nice and unpre totally unpredictable um experience however that ends up playing out but yeah you really you, you never quite know uh, what the experience will lead to but uh, i have a, another film coming out. i have another film coming out either later this year or early next year uh it also was uh, delayed by uh by the virus but uh, it's on uh, sergio mendez and uh, a nice uh, companion to this one yeah, and I've become very good friends with Sergio and his beautiful wife, Crescinia, and we uh, hang out, have dinner, and, and nice socially, socially distant dinner. Good but for you. But, you know, nice. there's a, another example. I was, gonna, talking about, talking I was just going to say also, later. Sergio Mendez, uh, I know, grew up as a nice Jew, in a nice Jewish family, I believe, in uh, Westchester. No? <laughs> Would you believe, would you believe a Catholic family in Brazil? But, uh, there you go. Um, uh, but there's, you know, so another example of something we were talking about a little earlier. I was thinking, I'd love to have somebody in Sergio's film that people like you and others that will watch it will say, what the heck is he doing in this film? And so in uh, the, the title of the film is Sergio Mendez in the Key of Joy. And we got Harrison Ford. And you talk about uh, how difficult that was. He, he really does not like doing interviews and he's a very hard get. So I'll tell the story of, I, I reached out to his publicist and, and said, here's who I am, here's what we're doing. And, and her attitude was like, well, why would he do that? <laughs> I said, just ask him, would you? Publicists please? are hard. If you can get through them, you're, you're most of the way, go ahead. Yeah, so 
a few days later, uh, the publicist called back very sheepish and said, well, we're all stunned. He wants to do it. And I think, uh, uh, number one, he had a very strong connection with Sergio. And number two, he could do an interview where he didn't have to talk about Indiana Jones right. or Star right. Wars. Right. So he came and uh, uh, what he got to talk about was who he was in life before he became Harrison Ford, the famous actor. I won't spoil it for you. People should go and see the film. But uh, he, he tells a wonderful, wonderful story of, of how he met Sergio and what their connection is. That's right. But you did know that he was a fan beforehand. I mean, why you wouldn't have just arbitrarily reached out to? No, Harrison I knew there Ford. was. I knew there was a history there. Yeah. Okay, I, I have to assume assume so. Yeah. No, I was going to guess as yeah. soon as you said, I was thinking, oh well, this is. But how often is he asked to talk about, you know, a musical uh, as a music fan? You yeah. know, so it was probably and refreshing. He, and he he was great. He, he was having a good time. He was not in a hurry, and uh, we we had a lot of fun with him. Nice teaser for the next film, by the way. <laughs> yes, thank you. I thought I'd squeeze it in. So maybe I can get Harrison Ford to on this next Zoom call with you to talk about uh, Sergio Mendez as well. <laughs> <laughs> Who can say? <laughs> well, you can pass me as publicist. <laughs> um, I did get uh, Karen Allen on last year, though. So mm. I was pretty excited about that. Yeah, well, she, a lot of us, a lot of us young boys, also had a big crush on her in, in oh, the yeah. of the Ark. She was great. Oh sure, I mean, I, I, I was assuming, so, so I was like trying to uh, keep cool and calm at getting Karen Allen on. I was definitely of the exactly that generation you're talking about. Um, well, the other oh, thing I'd like to uh, I'd like to share with you and and your your listeners is um, I just think this uh, Herb Alpert is is the right film at the right time. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we, we've been exposed to quite a bit of darkness uh, between politics and the virus and everything else. It's not been a happy time. And I really felt it was important to make a film that was uplifting and positive and nostalgic and fun and filled with great music. And that's what this is. And I firmly believe that anybody who comes to see the film is gonna leave with a big smile on their face. Well, a very good, a very well said, good uh, ad for your film. But it's very true, and it's why I made a point of tuning it, tuning into the uh, the live uh, screening the other the other night, uh, and I was so glad to. And then I watched some of your Q and A afterwards. Um, so I'm I'm going to urge people to uh, see it. You said it, Amazon Prime. What else? Where else did you say? Amazon Prime, iTunes, and I think uh, some of the other digital platforms. Platforms. Uh, it's not hard to find. This time, yeah. But uh, um, I hope people will see it. Uh, I'm, as I said at the top of the podcast here, I'm real proud of it. Uh, and for fans of his, uh, I mean, his music, almost all of his music is still out there uh, very much. And I know there's a new big, uh, collection that anthology type of collection that was released uh, possibly in t timing with the timed with the uh, premiere of Herb Albert is. It yeah, big like. box set, six, six CD box set uh, was a, also a, a, a cocktail uh, table book and uh, some other things, all of which sort of celebrate uh, Herb Albert. The, uh, the CD box set has many of the songs that we feature in the film and, and then some other surprises. 
So I urge your uh, fans to check that out as well. Well, it's great to have you on here, uh, finally, on the podcast. And um, I, I hope we can do this again when the Sergio comes out, uh, whether it's later this year. Well, it seems fairly quick. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, we're now in well into October. But however it's done, if, or next year, I'll, I'll happily do a part two with you. Yeah, happy to do it. Thanks for having me. It was nice to finally put a, a face to the voice. Thank you. Uh, this has been John Scheinfeld with uh, uh, Herb Albert is rent it now, stream it, and um, enjoy a great entertaining documentary about uh, an exceptional individual named Herb Albert. Thank you, John. I really appreciate it. Great, Adam. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a nice evening. Yep, you too. Take care. Yep, you too. Bye. Bye-bye now. You see, this I was treated guy. like a number. Shouldn't a record company revolve around the artist? I thought, I've ever had my own record company. That's what I would do first and foremost. And that was the start of A&M Records. I never tried to make a hit record. I always tried to make a good record. If it touches me emotionally, I'm in. I use that process for painting and sculpting. at A&M felt they were part of a family. Herb empowered so many others. It was like a paradise for creativity. He has built his career on touching people, not just through songs, but through his philanthropy. I just feel like I have to do it. I've been blessed way, way beyond my dreams. I don't think people listen with their ears. I think they listen with their soul. The fact that Herb is still making records and performing is remarkable. You never really get to the end product. You never get there. That's the seductive part of being an artist. Herb Alpert is butter. All right, thank you, everybody. We'll be back, of course, in a few days with a new episode of the podcast. If you're hungry for more film wax again let me direct you to the film wax radio youtube channel for that and you can follow us of course on all various social media platforms including the facetimes the instagrams and the twitters you can of course visit filmwaxradio.com subscribe to the newsletter interact engage with all things film wax as we continue through the autumn and into the winter we have such changes coming for the show in its 10th year. I'll be announcing those things soon. But in the meantime, my friends, vote, vote, vote. Take care of yourselves, the ones you love, and vote. Broken spring, broken idols.